The scripture text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friday morning, I looked out the bedroom window while I was buttoning my shirt, and I saw a parable of modern, secular American life. There was a man in a three-piece green suit walking uh, westward along the north side of 18th Street toward our house. Had something yellow in his hand. I couldn't see. It looked sort of like maybe a banana peel or a potato chip bag. And he... Uh, Looked to his left, and then he looked behind him, and he tossed it over the freeway fence. In that little parable, there are two marks of contemporary American life. One, practical atheism, and two, physical hedonism. I'll explain. The freeway fence is on his right with bushes so that nobody can see through. His eyes are ahead so he can see there. The ground is underneath. He checked on his left and he checked the behind and he tossed it over the fence. Why didn't he look up? Because there might have been somebody that matters on the left. And there might have been somebody that matters behind. There's nobody that matters above. He's a practical atheist when it comes to banana peels and potato chips. In the ordinary nitty-gritty affairs of our lives, far too many people who with their lips espouse belief in God with their actions betray atheism. The second mark of American secular life that I saw in this little episode was physical hedonism. Why did he want to get rid of this thing in his hand? Well, it was uncomfortable, right? Who wants to carry a plastic potato chip bag or a banana peel to a garbage can 18 feet across the street. Who wants to do that? That's trouble. That's uh, annoying. It's uncomfortable. So he tosses it. Well, why did he look to the left and look behind? Well, because his conscience said, this is not quite good. And somebody might see and disapprove. So a little battle went on. Lasted about five seconds, probably, in his soul. And the battle was between physical pleasure of having your hand free so it can swing. This is really true. And the other side of the battle was 
to have a clean conscience. And what won? What won the battle? Pleasure, physical pleasure, at the cost of a, a dirty conscience. That's just a little parable. It's not a big deal, right? Might be a big deal in his life, I don't know. That's a parable of secular American life. Practical atheism. There's nobody to take into account here besides me and any other humans around. And physical hedonism. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. And the two do, of course, relate closely, don't they? As soon as you get God out of the picture, then your conscience doesn't have to be reckoned with as a possible reflection of His image in you. A dim spark of His voice. As soon as you get God out of the picture, you can just go ahead and toss your bags any way you want. Or do anything else you feel like doing. Practical atheism and physical hedonism go hand in hand. If you can just keep God out of the bananas and potato chips of your life, then you can eat what you want and toss what you want and drink what you want and watch what you want on TV and look at all the books that you want. Now, the point of this story is to help make you remember what I'm about to unpack from verses 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Namely, that you and I, who, who don't claim to be atheists anyway, when we're alone and the battle begins in our lives between a physical desire and a clear conscience, we do look up. And we get victory by the power of the Holy Spirit and choose for purity, authenticity, not just some short-lived empty hand that can swing on your way to work. Let's look at the verses. Let's read them. Verses 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Now, to understand these verses, I think we need to read them backward. We need to start at the end and go back. So let's start with the last part of verse 13 and verse 14 and look at three things in those uh, words first. It says, the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us. Your body, number one, your body is for the Lord. You see that? The body is for the Lord. There is one reason why God has given everybody in this room a body. That Christ might be glorified with your body. Verse 20. Glorify God with your body. That's the one reason everybody has a body. There may be little subordinate reasons. That's the one ultimate reason. You've got a body on this earth so that you will have an instrument of righteousness as chapter 6 says in Romans, or an instrument by which to reflect the glory of God by showing how infinitely satisfying Christ is to liberate you from other addictions. Then he says that not only is the body for the Lord, he makes this astonishing statement at the end of verse 13, 
The Lord is for the body. Christ is not indifferent to your body. He paid a price for your body. He makes your body a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, according to verse 19. He is not indifferent to what you do with it, how you treat it, what use you make of it. It is important to God. The Lord is for the body. And a lot of you hate your body. It may be too big, too little. It may be full of pain. It may have marks all over it. You don't like it. Well, you need to just stop and meditate on this truth. The Lord is for the body. The Lord is for your body. It is not a matter of indifference or mistake to Him. He has purposes for it. Which leads us to the final observation in verse 14. God raised the Lord, Jesus, and He will raise us. In other words, your body has eternal significance. Its importance doesn't even end at the grave. On and on and on throughout eternity, you're going to have a body. It will be continuous with the body you have right now, although perfected. People will know you in the resurrection, just like they knew Christ after the resurrection. You're going to have this body perfected if you stay in fellowship with Jesus Christ to the grave. What do we make then of verse 13? It seems to say just the opposite of this high view of the body. Verse 13 says at the beginning, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Sounds like just the opposite attitude that we've just seen. And I think it is just the opposite attitude in the mouths of the Corinthians. I think what we've got here is a reflection of a slogan at Corinth used by the Corinthians to justify overeating and drunkenness and sexual immorality. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, it's all going to rot in the grave past the potatoes. All that matters is what you think, what's inside. We're going to be free spirits someday, liberated from what they thought was just a prison for the soul. So they justified immorality. Chapter 5, verse 2, they boasted about incest in the church. Boasted about it. We're free. The body doesn't count. Do what you want to do. They boasted about their drunkenness in chapter 11. At the Lord's table, they were drunk and free, free in Christ. Because the body doesn't really count. What matters is what you know. If you're in on the secret of the universe. And Paul opposes this doctrine with all his might in this text. He gave them a new slogan. They had the slogan, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. It's all going to rot in the grave, past the potatoes, right? He said, here's a new slogan, folks. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Say it with me. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You ought to say that when you sit down at your dinner table today. You ought to say it when you reach for that twelfth cup of coffee. You ought to say it when you reach for that first glass of wine. You ought to say it when you look at that magazine stand. You ought to say it when you say, I can't get out of bed to pray, it's too I'm too tired. My body needs rest. 
You ought to say it when you're at work and you can't go home because you've got to get this report done because work is more important than the family. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord and woe to the person who yields to addictions at the cost of his conscience. So, in verses 13 to 14, I think what we have is a slogan from Corinth and a theological opposition to it. Now, if we turn to verse 12, I think we have the very same thing. The slogan and the response from Paul. The slogan is, all things are lawful for me. And the response is first, but not all things are helpful. The slogan, all things are lawful for me. And the response I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. You're not either, are you? Now, these words, all things are lawful for me, may well come from Paul's teaching. I suspect he said that. He didn't deny it here. He didn't say, well, no, all things are not lawful for me. He didn't do that. He could have done that. He probably had said those words. But what he meant when they came out of his mouth and what the Corinthians mean when they come out of their mouths were worlds apart. Here's what I think Paul meant. They used them to justify all manner of license. What does Paul mean? What would he mean if he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are freeing. I think he means this. When you cease to live by legal lists of do's and don'ts. You must begin to live by the law of love and the law of liberty coming from within. And the first response is the law of love and the second response is the law of liberty. In other words, yes, the old legal code that you felt as a a constraint coming from outside, warranted by threatenings that coerced you into doing what you didn't want to do. Yes, be free of it. Now what do you do? You're free of it. You're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. What do you do? You do two things. You ask, number one, is it helpful to anybody? That's his first response. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So when you stop asking the question, do I have to do this? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to pay all this money on my taxes? I sat in a restaurant yesterday with Benjamin. I take one of the boys out each Saturday. and I sat there watching this uh, waitress collect her tips. You know, about a dollar on each table at this place. I thought to myself, it take incredible integrity to report all that on your, on your tax returns. And, and a Christian might, if he doesn't understand Christian freedom, say, do I have to do this? You shouldn't ask that kind of question. There are two questions you should ask, and the first one here is, is my action helpful? That's what love asks, and that's why I call it the law of love. And here's the second thing you should ask. He says in the last half of verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So what should, what should you ask? 
will it enslave me? Will it become my master? Is it already my master? Are second helpings my master or my servant? Is this drink my master or my servant? Is this picture of this woman in this magazine my master? Has it drawn me in here on a leash like a dog? Or is it my servant over which I have moral control? You don't have to ask, do I have to do it? You can ask the loving question, is it helpful and will it enslave me? Has it enslaved me? So there are two laws here. The law of love, is it helpful? And the law of liberty, will it enslave me? And if you ask now, how do these two laws relate to each other? Are they just two, two guidelines out there and one time you go this way and one time you go this way? Paul, in Galatians 5.13, answers it like this. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free, only do not use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what's the most foundational thing? What's the spring and what's the river? The spring is freedom. The river is love. Inside of you there is a gift of spiritual freedom by the Holy Spirit and the overflow of that in service is love. And other people get helped. Is it helpful? Other people get helped by this river of love that flows out from inner freedom. So, my admonition, my basic challenge this morning is at any cost, keep your freedom. Say with Paul, I will not be enslaved by anything, nothing, from a cup of coffee to a tenth slice of pizza at Pasquale's, or anything, sleep, work, laziness. Lust. I want, to, I want to close this morning with two motivations for why you should strive to be free from all enslavements. From the little ones as you regard them to the big ones as you and God no doubt regard them. Why? Two reasons we're going to talk about just briefly. One, slavery is dangerous. And two, freedom is delightful. Wonderful. Slavery is dangerous. Here's what I mean. The persistent refusal to say no to an enslaving habit like overeating runs the risk of hardening your conscience so that you no longer feel it as an enslavement. In fact, you sit there saying, big deal, pastor. Come on, get to something important. There is tremendous danger in ongoing refusal to own up to the weakening voice of your conscience. Other things begin to be more easily rationalized. And it can happen that very soon the whole biblical concept of the Christian life as a warfare, as vigilance, as self-denial and self-control vanishes out of your life. You get up in the morning and you're right to the trough instead of to the post. To arms! It's gone. You don't think of it that way anymore. That's dangerous. 
Let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you think that we are beyond the possibility of making shipwreck of our faith? Where do you think backsliders and apostates come from? They don't come from the moon. They come from churches. They come from people who little by little by little have stopped saying no to the temptations that cause a crisis of conscience, even in little things. Food for the body, the body for food. It's no big deal. Why, do you suppose, did God record the story of Esau in Hebrews 12? He said, don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. You think nothing's at stake in meals? He was lost because he chose a meal over obedience, over the promise. How did Hymenaeus and Alexander make shipwreck of their faith? 1 Timothy 1.19 By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Rejecting conscience, what does that mean? Rejecting conscience? It means when your conscience says, I'm eating too much, you go ahead and eat. It means when your conscience says, I shouldn't look at this dirty book, you go ahead and look at it. It means when your conscience says, drinking is dangerous, I shouldn't drink, you drink. It means when your conscience says, get out of bed and say 15 minutes for prayer, you say, I'm too tired. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Let him who thinks that he stands, pastors included, take heed lest we fall. Why do you think the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, Run that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in two things. No. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable. Well, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box the air. I pommel my body. I subdue it. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself become a castaway. Paul thought what happened to this body had eternal implications. Why do you suppose, when it came time for him to have one solitary sermon to preach to Felix, the governor, as a prisoner, he chose for his outline justice, self-control, and future judgment. If you had one sermon to preach to a lost Roman governor and you were a prisoner, would your second point be self-control? Well, it's important, brothers and sisters. Don't put it on the back burner anymore. Call it up today when you go home. Call it up. Deal with it. Pray about it. God has said these things for our sake. Cast off the bondage of your body. You were not meant to be led like a dog on a leash to lust or hunger. But let me close on the positive note. Freedom is wonderful. 
freedom is gloriously joyful. That guy coming down the street with his three-piece green suit on and his belly hanging out under his vest, when he chose to have the pleasure of a free hand swinging at his side instead of having to carry this potato chip bag to a garbage can and chose it over his conscience and the joy of a clean conscience. Did he choose joy? Answer me. Did he choose joy? My God, he didn't choose joy. He chose misery. We're always choosing misery because we haven't planned to say no to that second helping or that drink or that look into the magazine or getting out of bed in the morning. And so we surrender in the moment to the God of the belly. And Paul said, there are people in Philippians 3 who deny the cross whose God is their belly. Which simply means they obey the belly. But if you turn around and avail yourself of the law of the spirit of life within and feel the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child and bearing the fruit, the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit, self-control, and you feel the power to pommel your body into submission so that it becomes a servant rather than a slave master, I tell you, you will wake up in the morning and go to bed at night with joy instead of in the misery of a failed conscience for another day. Brothers and sisters, you were bought with a price. Your bodies count they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Shall we pray? O Lord God, we need so much in our lives an outpouring of the Spirit and the mind of Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself, denying himself, controlling himself, even to death, the death on the cross that we might live. O Christ, come and give us your mind. Give us your spirit, I pray.